Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. So this podcast is about the tarot, but here we're going to focus on the first 22 cards of the deck, what is known as the Major Arcana. In each episode, I'll take a look at the symbolic language embedded in the Major Arcana cards of the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck to discuss what each archetype has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. At the end of each episode, I'll offer a few reflection questions and exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. I'd like to begin today's episode by introducing a term that's both a reference to the title and suggests unstoppable chaotic change, and that word is apocalypse. Given that this is my entry point to the series and Also, when considering the connotations and baggage that come with the word, I think that this is a good place for us to begin. So the etymology of the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which simply means uncovering. So whether we embrace, run from, or stubbornly deny this uncovering, the conditions created by apocalypse serve to reveal that which has been hidden in plain sight for way too long. For example, I am recording this during a time when a global health crisis is revealing the violence that marginalized folks around the world have been forced to deal with for generations. While the catalyst for this crisis certainly creates the conditions for novel and perplexing problems, I think it's also important to consider the ways in which these apocalyptic conditions serve to uncover the precariousness and violence that capitalism and the medical industrial complex have already brought into our lives. Whatever is revealed during apocalypse has been there all along, and what I love about tarot is that it helps us to work with the energy of chaos in such a way that reminds us of our role in shaping change. One of my intentions for creating this podcast is to extend an invitation, both to you, dear listeners, and to myself to cultivate an unflinching relationship to our own vulnerability. There is a somewhat confrontational tone with tarot that distinguishes it from oracle decks, which tend to deliver its messages with a gentler touch. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps it's a reflection of the zeitgeist within which the tarot was developed. I don't know, but there is something about the tarot that communicates a kind of relentlessness and urgency for truth-telling, which, in retrospect, gives me some insight into my own journey with this divination practice. So I got my first deck in the eighth grade at some hippie shop in The Hate in San Francisco. I grew up as an only child and was also a latchkey kid, so Any kind of game or activity that I could do alone with little to no supervision was it for me. That was the move. (laughs) 
But as I was getting to know my new card deck and giving myself readings, uh, I distinctly remember a moment of experiencing this overwhelming sense of the heebie-jeebies. It was totally creeped out for reasons which I understand now, but couldn't quite articulate back then. But if I could put language on that experience now, I think I felt as though I had opened something up or rather opened up myself to something that I wasn't quite ready for. And I think that something, if I were again to name it now, was chaos energy and maybe something that I can only really describe as portal energy. Boundaries between this realm and the spirit realm got a little too thin and I I just don't think that I was ready for all of that. So I ended up stuffing my deck in one of my drawers and didn't think about it or tarot for that matter for years. Uh, it was only a few months ago that I retrieved this deck from my mom's house and it was only last night that I finally integrated this deck with the rest of my decks. So my re-entry point into reading cards was during my Saturn return through an oracle deck called the Moon Deck. This deck offers affirmations and carries a much gentler, almost uh, maternal quality, which was in many ways exactly what I needed at a time when I was decidedly learning to reparent myself. I worked with this deck exclusively for about three years before incorporating tarot and other oracle decks into my divination practice. I share this trajectory with you to underscore the fact that my relationship to tarot and divination is an ongoing development that is shaped by my experiences and the stages that I'm going through in my own life. There are many different ways to use tarot. I'm just offering one way to approach this tool. As the title suggests, this podcast is really about how you can use the tarot to cultivate a generative relationship with ambiguity and uncertainty, with the understanding that chaos that isn't shaped will shape itself. Now, let me just be really clear about what I don't do (laughs) on this podcast. So I don't offer virtual readings, predictions, or give people advice on when to purchase toilet paper or whatever. What I'm really interested in is having a conversation about the ways in which instability gives rise to new opportunities and to take a look at how the archetypes presented in the tarot can root us in the wisdom we need to navigate these times. So this is a great landing spot if you're wanting to find new entry points into this practice or you're simply interested in demystifying the tarot. Regardless of your personal why, I invite you to take what works, leave what doesn't, and give yourself permission to soften into change. Okay, so for this first episode, we're really going to be talking about the symbolic language of the tarot. So what I'm going to be offering are just a couple of definitions and just an overview of how the symbolic language of the tarot operates 
within the context of the Rider Waite Smith tarot card deck. Tarot is a divination tool, and divination is a word that describes the process of connecting with divine energy or source energy, whatever you want to call it, uh, to piece together information, insights, and connections that may have been unclear, obfuscated, or otherwise inaccessible. For me, divination is less about prediction and more about how we, through the language of symbolism, can work to access, connect, and make sense of what our intuition or our quote-unquote gut brain already knows. So in a not-so-distant past life, I was a youth worker and educator supporting young folks in navigating their journeys through mental health and personal growth. And in this line of work, I frequently told my students, you know more than you think. And what I mean by that is that our brains aren't the only places where we store knowledge and wisdom in our bodies. You know more than what your thinking brain can access. Somatic therapy and countless other healing modalities work to create harmony where there is emotional, mental, physical dissonance by creating connection where there is fragmentation. And so when we give attention to and context for these fragmented parts of ourselves and offer those fragmented parts the care that it needs, we can then move into integrating them into our consciousness and ultimately experience a sense of wholeness and safety no matter where we are in our respective healing journeys. So while I do consider the whole body, or to take it a step further, the collection of bodies we inhabit, so your physical body, emotional body, energetic body, while I consider all of these bodies to be bodies that hold their own kind of precious wisdom, for the sake of this podcast, There are three areas in the physical body that I will focus on and refer to as knowing centers. So the gut is one knowing center. I consider it to be one of the first knowing centers. Uh, Then the heart and then the brain. In my own healing journey, I have found that the source of a lot of my suffering is not only caused by the trauma that I've experienced in and of itself, but by the short-circuiting and disconnect that occurs between these knowing centers when I'm living my life in survival mode. So what the tarot does is it helps us to clarify and connect the information that these knowing centers keep, building continuity between what the gut knows, what the heart knows, and what the head knows, so that we may become more grounded in our own experience of our truth. For me, when I'm reading a spread, I am searching for that moment of clarity when the information from my gut, my heart, and my brain all stack into alignment. Much like how our brain uses the language of symbols, memory, and association to work out the stuff that our conscious minds can't deal with when we're awake, uh, tarot uses the language of symbolism and collective memory presented through the form of archetypes to lead us back to our own intuition and a more holistic, integrated sense of knowing. 
Now, the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck is just one of many different types of divination card decks, one of many different types of tarot decks as well, but it is the deck that is most frequently referenced and used by tarot readers today. It is also the prototypical model for many of the newer decks that are in circulation. Now, it's important to note that the illustrations on the Rider-Waite-Smith deck was done by an artist and occultist named Pamela Coleman-Smith. Folks often refer to the Rider-Waite-Smith deck simply as the Rider-Waite deck, which is problematic because it effectively erases her from the history of the development of this ubiquitous tarot deck. And yeah, we're not trying to erase history here. <laughs> Particularly when the history that is being erased is the legacy of a woman artist. Now, prior to the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, the history of the tarot can be traced to 15th century Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, but was likely the result of playing cards that were introduced to Europe through parts of modern-day Egypt and other parts of the Middle East. So the history and lineage of the tarot in and of itself is diasporic. The tarot deck is a collection of 78 cards divided into two major categories, the major arcana and the minor arcana. The first 22 cards of the deck are categorized as the major arcana, which through a progression of archetypes illustrate the quote-unquote fool's journey or the prototypical narrative that describes one's journey through life. Of course, most people's life experiences don't always fall within a singular structure or singular universalized narrative. However, the lessons of each archetype build on one another in succession in such a way that speaks to themes that are common to human experiences. Now, the rest of the deck is organized into four suits. So you have your wands, cups, swords, and pentacles, which all represent, respectively, the elements of fire, water, air, and earth. This is referred to collectively as the Minor Arcana. Now the Minor Arcana cards track the micro-movements that shape how the themes of the Major Arcana will present itself in whatever situation you're inquiring about. Each suit contains cards that are chronologically ordered from 1 through 10, followed by court cards represented by the page, the knight, the queen, and king of each suit, in that order. While all the suits share similar narrative arcs, the elemental category of each suit gives it its own themes and frames its focus. So the wands, ruled by the passionate and perhaps impulsive element of fire, is associated with creation and creativity, inspiration, the first spark, the catalyst. We then move into cups, which is ruled by the heart-centered, ooey-gooey element of water it speaks to our emotional and internal lives and matters that deal with the heart. We're then met with the suit of the swords, which is ruled by the cerebral, cool and detached element of air, which represents the mind and all that feeds or <laughs> burdens it. <laughs> 
the suit of swords is very much logic driven um yeah lastly we have the pentacles ruled by the utilitarian element of earth representing materiality and that which is rooted in the practical and the tactile each card is also shaped by its numerology so the number on the card for example ones tend to represent new beginnings four carries the element of stability or stubbornness even fives often speak to some kind of conflict and tens indicate some kind of ending or resolution the meaning of the court cards and all the cards uh, featuring human figures for that matter are also shaped by some archaic hierarchies and eurocentric gender norms that don't always apply um but like all symbolic language uh, it's a tool for understanding the energetic and narrative function of each card so i think that this is a good time to mention that the gender binary is obsolete and the way that it's reflected in the tarot is a reflection of normative gender roles that are shaped by whiteness, Eurocentrism, colonial mentality, etc, etc. Uh, but it does give shape to the structure of the tarot, so I do want to take a moment to address it. Within the context of the tarot, the human figures characterized as women represent feminine energy, while the figures characterized as men represent masculine energy. Another way to describe this, and the way that I understand gendered symbolism within the context of the tarot, is that the quality of feminine energy is receptive and internal, it's driven by interiority and asks us to move into that space. And masculine energy is outward facing, external, and driven by how we exert our energy within our external environments. Now within a lot of spiritual circles, okay, let me let me actually get specific here. Within white new age circles, uh, I have frequently heard feminine cards being described as passive um, and placed in opposition to masculine cards that are characterized as active or offensive energy. Now, I don't know what y'all's relationship to shadow work looks like, or even if, you know, you have been mm, doing any kind of internal work, whether that be going to therapy or getting into a meditation practice, what have you. Those are all expressions of internal or uh, cultivating internal energy, cultivating interiority. And I don't know about y'all, but that shit is not easy. <laughs> There's nothing passive about that. It is just a different expression of, of energy. It's just a different focus. So anyway, although this language is used a lot to differentiate between the masculine and feminine cards, I want to use this space to cultivate language that isn't so dichotomous. Anyone can embody feminine or masculine energy. These energies aren't mutually exclusive. How we define femininity and masculinity is culturally specific, 
historically situated, and absolutely malleable. So all this to say, these cards are not a perfect system and reflect an imperfect world in many ways. Language fails us all the time. But there is room for us to use what works and transform what doesn't. So this symbolic language system is a common thread that links the major and the minor arcana cards. So even if we're not talking about the minor arcana, uh, this information will hopefully be useful to you as we go through the archetypes that are presented in the major arcana and as we work to understand the language of tarot in general. Now, the very act of reading spreads and engaging with your tarot deck revolves around inquiry. It teaches us how to lead with curiosity while respecting some of the laws of the universe like divine timing, free will, and our right to slash responsibility for our personal sovereignty. Tarot helps us to access the information that we need to take the next step, which is For me, different from predicting someone's future, part of the reason why I'm reluctant to offer tarot readings to predict what comes next, I think that, you know, you're the only person who really knows what's going to, what you're going to do next. So I don't necessarily use tarot for that purpose. There are just too many factors that one simply has no control over, including how someone exercises their agency. This is part of the reason why I'm reluctant to offer tarot readings uh, for the specific purpose of predicting the future. Even though that's kind of the, the baseline definition of what divination is, for me, my relationship to divination doesn't look like fortune telling in the way that it is understood on a pop culture level. So it's in this sense that tarot reminds us of two things. One, we don't need to know everything to begin or to take the next step. And two, we have the agency to shape change. As we come to a close, I invite you to reflect on some of the inquiries that you may have been sitting with, whether it be for the last few days, last few months, last few years. To paraphrase uh, Zora Neale Hurston, I think she once said, there are years that ask questions and there are years that offer answers. And so I wonder for you listeners, what are some of the questions that you've been sitting with for the past little while? Are there any themes that tie these questions together? Are your inquiries based in examining one area of your life? Are there questions that creep up in different areas of your life that have common themes? I invite you to consider those questions and really give them a chance to rise to the surface. I'd like to close today's episode with a quote from the visionary, frighteningly specific and ever relevant apocalypse text Parable of the Talents by Black science fiction writer Octavia Butler. And uh, if y'all haven't caught on by my uh, subtle, not so subtle allusions to her work, Octavia Butler is an ancestor who heavily informs my work and my relationship to change. We can 
each of us do the impossible as long as we can convince ourselves that it has been done before. The function of the archetype is to remind us that we have been here before, that within the tapestry of human experience, somebody somewhere has experienced what may have been up until that point it happened, the unimaginable. I look forward to exploring them with you. Thanks for listening.